Good morning. My name is Eric, and I'm on staff here, and it is a privilege to be here. So glad to sing about victory in Jesus, because as we finish part three of a three-part series through 1 Samuel 17, we're going to be looking at a message entitled, The Victory Belongs to the Lord and to His People. So, for two weeks now, we've been looking at the forces aligned against each other on both sides of the valley, and there's this valley between them, and there's a giant named Goliath, the man of the between, who would hold the position between the two valleys, and he would mock and dishearten the people of God. We see a lot of fear in this text over the last three weeks. We begin to see a man respond in faith in the midst of all of the fear, and we're going to see that David's faith in God was warranted, and that God's going to do awesome things in response to his faith. But before we get into our passage, I'm going to do something that you're typically told not to do. I'm going to take you to another passage real quick to kind of set up this passage. So if you could open up to Genesis 32... Because one thing I want to make really clear before we finish this text, if if we make this all about the victory of David, the faith of David, the works of David, and we make this go be like David, then we failed you, right? Because as soon as you get to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, you're going to see go be like David doesn't really hold up when he's having an affair with Bathsheba, he's sending the head of his army to the front of the battlefield. So we confuse people. That's a, When we moralize the Bible and we look at a man like David in this story and say, go and be like him, but then we know the rest of the story. We tell people, well, don't go and be like him that time. It's, it's confusing. And we don't want our application after three weeks in this text to come down to the faith of man because um, my faith, can be pretty unimpressive sometimes. I mean, there's times where I can identify with with David charging the battlefield, and and there's times where I just want to belly up, and I'm afraid to go out that day. You know what I mean? So we don't want it to be just ride on this man's faith. We take great delight in the promise from Paul to Timothy that even... When we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So I wanted to show you a story that was really similar. And I've got some some bullet points up here because I'm not going to preach the story. It would be better if you just go back and look at it in your own time sometime. But in Genesis 32, if you remember, um, Esau had really, or Jacob had deceived his brother Esau, stole his birthright. And Esau gives this promise, the next time you see my face, you shall die. So in chapter 32, where a couple of chapters after that, Jacob had prospered and the Lord was beginning to bless the works of his hand. And and he's in this city where he really encounters God. And in those first couple of verses, he says, I'm going to rename this city. This is God's camp because God is here. God is meeting me in this place. And while he's there, he sends for Esau so that him and his long lost brother can be reconnected and reconciled to each other. But in verses 5 and 6, you see that worry begins to set in. He said, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we've 
We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to you. And there's 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him into camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the other camp is left to escape. So he goes to bed that night, and he prays this beautiful prayer to the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. He starts out with, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do good. He recounts God's faithfulness. He recounts God's faithfulness to his family. He prays to God. He remembers God's promise that if you go into the land that I show you, I will prosper you. And then he wakes up in the morning in verses 13 through 21, show him making provisions just in case. Just in case those prayers weren't really answered last night. Just in case God's promises weren't really true. Just in case Esau really is going to kill me when God said that he would keep me safe. This leads to a time, famous passage, where Jacob wrestles with God all night and has a real encounter with his God, only to find out in the first eight chapter verses of the next chapter, Esau comes and says, what were all these provisions that you made? I'm not looking for any of this. I didn't want any of it. Esau's heart was already won because God had already gone before him and won the victory. And I find myself doing that so many times, and I just wanted to be real before getting into this text. I pray to God to go before me, I recount the times in the past where God has gone before me. And then just in case, I get to work making provisions in case God doesn't show up. Anybody ever done that? Can anyone identify? So either the Lord is God or he's not. Either the battle is the Lord's or it's not. And we're brought to that valley of decision today. And David David seems to understand this. Hopefully... Those of us who are here are a little bit better than Jacob in that, and we're able to trust, and we don't have to go make provisions for ourselves. But if anybody struggles with that, I don't want you to feel condemned in this passage on great faith. I'm going to give you an outline for any of you note takers, then we're going to jump in. The battle belongs to the Lord, verses 41 through 47. The victory belongs to the Lord and to his people, up through verse 54. And then the victory is accomplished by the son of Jesse, verses 55 through 58. Would you stand? And I'm going to read the first, oh, eight verses or so, and then we'll get into the word. Starting in verse 41, it says this, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spirit, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Let's pray. God, may we leave here with deeper than just mental assent that the battle is yours, and you do not fight by sword or by spear, Lord, and that you are saving and drawing people to yourself even now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, so our first point, the battle belongs to the Lord. We see the Philistine finally beginning to move closer to the battlefield. This story has just been building, and now the battle lines are drawn in verse 41. It says, The Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And I, I love the shade that the writer is starting to throw at Goliath. He continues to bring up that the shield-bearer is before him these last two times when he brings up Goliath. Um, I mean, technically, Goliath's not really the man of the between, is he? Because he's got a shield-bearer between him and David. So the shield-bearer is really the man of the between. And in verses 42 through 44, you see Goliath's taunt. And in verse 42, it's again coming back to making decisions based on outward appearances. It says, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained them, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Uh, so Goliath disdains David. He holds him in contempt. It, it's a really fun Hebrew word. I don't know Hebrew, but um, I figured I'd try to read this. Weyibzihu. Um, is what it is in the Hebrew. You knew that already, though, didn't you? And it's the word that's used of Esau in Genesis 35. It's a really rare word, but it's the word that Esau despised, held contempt for his birthright. It brings to mind in this usage of David, 1 Timothy 4.12, where we're told, let nobody despise or look down upon your youthfulness. You hear that young row over there? Let nobody despise or look down upon your youthfulness, but be an example in speech and love and conduct and discipline. Um, This man was despised just because he was your guy's age. And that's not okay with the Lord. The Lord's not all right with that because he thinks that you're pretty special and that you guys can accomplish awesome things. So um, the reason that Goliath holds him in contempt, that language should look familiar, right? When it says that he was but a youth, but ruddy and handsome in appearance, He had contempt for him for the same reason that David's brothers had contempt upon him. There's a lot of making decisions based off of appearances in this text. It's been a reoccurring theme that man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And then we see Goliath's taunt in verse 43. He says, The Philistine said to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. So his comment was about David's stat. I brought a couple weapons with me today. So, I mean, he's coming with one of these things, and he's a giant. And David's got a stick, right? Um, it seems that he's unaware of the sling at this point. He's coming with his sword. He's like, I am nine foot, nine inches. I've got a sword like this, and you're going to come at me with a stick. And since we knew he already disdained his youth, it would be like my... 10-year-old son Calvin coming at me with a stick. And I'd be like, are you nuts right now? Do you not see that I, I, I have a sword? It would appear 
that he doesn't see the sling because he's a little bit blinded by his own arrogance and self-confidence, and he's read his own press clippings and seems to believe them. Um, So much of this chapter ends up coming back to what is it that we put our confidence in. And this arrogant self-confidence is just another example of foolishness, which is probably worth pointing out, right? Because we live in a time where the self is promoted more than the self has really ever been promoted. And we're told, you know, put confidence in yourself. I don't know who these people are that tell people that, but I go home with me at the end of the night, right? And I know that put confidence in yourself should not be the answer. And we get to see firsthand what the folly of a man who by every right, if somebody should have confidence in themselves, it would be him. And his folly is plain to see as we go through. And not only does he make a threat, but then we see he steps over the line and he blasphemes the God of Israel. After asking if he's a dead dog that he comes out with sticks, it says the Philistine cursed David by his God. David makes, I mean, Goliath makes a massive mistake by invoking his gods against the gods of Israel. There's a movie, not recommending it, Bronx Tale, where there's this scene where there's a bunch of people that do something dumb. And they're at the bar of the, the gangsters, the wise guys. So the wise guys just tell them, you know what, you need to leave. But instead, they just defy them even more. And then they lock the door and say, well, now you can't leave. And the scene begins to change. <laughs> and that's what it's like here. You know, you've got Goliath shouting all of these curses, but then he goes one step too far and says, by my gods, I will defeat you. And by extension, will defeat your gods. Being from Gath, his main god would have been an idol named Dagon, who we read about back in chapter 5. And Goliath calls upon the name of his defeated God to give him victory. One commentator put it like this. Goliath signals the true dimensions of this conversation, and he didn't even know. He gets it. As I've been telling you guys for two weeks, this isn't just Israel versus the Philistines. This is the God of Israel versus the gods of the Philistines. So if it wasn't clear by now, it's clear by the time you get to verse 43 that this is Dagon versus Yahweh. And there's going to be a showdown. And in verse 44, you see his curse on David. It says, The Philistines said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is the language of cursing in the Old Testament. To be just left out with your body. To be defiled by the birds of the air. This was language that was picked up. In Psalm 79, if anyone wants to turn there, I don't think I have a slide for this one. But listen to verses 1 through 4, and you'll see just how great this threat is. O God, the nations have come in to your inheritance. They've defied your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one there to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. That's exactly what's going on here. That's what Goliath is doing. And you see David's response in verses 45 through 47. 
He says, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. So he first goes back to Goliath's misplaced trust and says, Goliath, again, you think you're going to scare me because you keep coming at me with weapons. And you think that that's going to make me give in to you as if this is what's going to decide the battle. But, but he knows it's not. He says, but I come to you completely differently. I'm coming to you in the name of the heavenly armies. I'm coming to you in the name of the God who leads the heavenly armies. And just in case you don't remember, this is the God whom you have defied before going into battle with me. This term um, that he comes in the name of the Lord is only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used in Psalm 118.26, and we're going to actually have a liturgy to go through that, to walk through it at the end of the service. But it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us victory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, but it's picked up twice by Jesus during his Passion Week in the New Testament. When he's going um, to Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, when he's seated upon the donkey and the son of David is coming into the city of David, the people begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus repeats it again in Matthew 23 referring to himself. You're going to see that there's something bigger going on here. But David goes on to show you the reasons for his confidence. Look at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all may know that there is a God in Israel. He's confident that the Lord will deliver Goliath into his hands. Again, we've seen so much made about the size, about the weapons, about the armor, about Saul wanting to put his armor on David. And he doesn't have confidence in any of these things. In fact, this is like a rebuke to put in confidence in those things. He's saying, the Lord will deliver Goliath into his hand. This makes all the difference in the world. You know, both of these men were incredibly confident going into this battle. If confidence was all you needed to win, right, then David stands um, just as good of a shot, or Goliath stands just as good a shot as David. But David's confidence was in God rather than himself. And the rest of verse 46, David reverses the curse that Goliath spoke. Did you notice David's comments? They read exactly like in the Hebrew, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. But what he's really doing is he's reversing the curse. He's saying this foolish curse that you made because of your foolish God and your foolish confidence, you're going to see that the real God, when he comes and stands on my behalf, is going to reverse the curse that you have just given. And brothers and sisters... Jesus Christ has been in the business of reversing curses for a long time. We get to see that in this story about Jesus' great-great-grandfather, times a million, David.
How many greats are there in a thousand years? Anyone do the math? Probably like 46 or something like that. Um, But he's confident. The reasons for his confidence, you see the end of it in the end of verse 46, that all the earth may know. Then it gives four things that he wants all the earth to know. That all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly may know that this God, he doesn't save by shield or by spear or by sword. Four. If you circle things in your Bible, circle that four there. And if you don't, then circle it in your neighbor's Bible. Four. The battle is the Lord's. And then if you want to circle another word, the and, right after it, and he will give you into our hand. Look at the progression of that. The reason that, it's, that the Lord's going to be victorious is so that people would know there's a God in Israel, that the assembly may know that he saves differently than the world saves, for this is his battle and accomplishment is what he's getting into. Verse 47 really challenges the self-centered way that I can approach a crisis. You know, typically, when crisis hits, my first reaction is to lament about the crisis. Then I do a nice, hearty session of complaining about the crisis, intermingled with worrying about the, the crisis, right? And then bargaining sets in, and you see if you can avoid the crisis. Sometimes after acceptance, I might begin to ask, what does God have for me in this? What is God trying to show me about me in this crisis? In many ways, verses 46 and verses 47 end up being the key to this whole passage because they have nothing to do about what God is showing me about myself in the middle of a crisis. They're all about what God is revealing through himself, about, revealing about himself through the crisis. This isn't about me. It's not about you. It's not about David. This is a story primarily about God. And what he's showing is there is a God in Israel. Just like it says in Hebrews 11, that those who come to him in faith must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's saying he is. So his self-revelation is something that he's telling you about himself. This God doesn't wage war the way that the world does, because you can't defeat sin with sin. Do you think they still needed to hear that in the Gospels when they were waiting for this messianic Thor to just come down and beat up all of the Romans, right? No, no. He doesn't wage battle the way that our war, our world wages battle. He's holy. He, he's righteous. God will defeat the enemy, and that's what God was revealing about himself. In the crisis. So if you're currently going through a crisis, I just want to personalize that for a moment. What is God showing you about God in the crisis? He's lasting. He's the one that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I remember when I was, right before I got saved, I think I've shared this story. I was really into like introspective kind of books and self-help books. And I was wondering, like, man, when am I going to finally learn this thing about myself to make myself be different? Because I didn't like who I was, right? And this guy that was sharing the gospel said to me, well, how are you going to look up into your jacked up heart with jacked up information in it? And how's your jacked up head going to know if it really finds the answer? 
The answer wasn't from looking within. I needed to look to a Savior who saved me because the answer wasn't in. And and the answer that was within was pretty corrupt and not worth trusting in. So I'm not asking what is crisis revealing to you about you. Not that that's useless, right? Self-reflection is a a good thing to a degree, unless it leads to navel-gazing and inactivity. Um, What is the Lord showing you about the Lord himself in your present crisis? What does God want you to know about God? So point two, the victory belongs to the Lord and his people. Verses 48, let me read 48 through 49 first. When the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead and he fell down on his face to the ground. So David's running to the battlefield. That should indicate that like something big is about to happen, right? And then you see Goliath's slow walk. He's coming in like, I don't know if any of you have ever watched like a heavyweight champion fight. Those guys take like 12 minutes to get from the back to get up to the battle lines. He's strutting, you know. And David's just like, come on, let's do this already. Um, There's something that the author's doing here with the action being upon us so quickly. Listen to this quote that one of the commentators I read had to say. He said, the time for action has come. In the narrative, it's taken 47 verses to get to this point. But like the New Testament Gospels... When the critical moment arrives, the action is recounted with surprising brevity. Isn't that interesting? 47 verses to get up to this moment where it takes one verse to say that a stone crushed through his forehead. Um, And we see David's swift victory. I I just read verse 49 into verses 49 and 50. David puts his hand into his bag. Our worship leader, Brian Jansen, gave me a sling this morning. Um, I was going to use a COVID mask as a sling. (laughs) And I'd still like to try to see if... Right? David runs... I I don't know how to use a fancy one like this. So glad I didn't take Jake's advice and put candy in that, because that could have hurt if it hit somebody. Um, so he pulls out this thing against this thing, and this guy's got a shield bearer in front of him who's probably a giant. One of these, a spear that's even bigger, um, a scimitar on his back, and he's clothed in scales. And armor. And David runs to the field with one of these. And he hurls it towards the Philistine and, and it strikes his forehead. Look at verse 50. It says, And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So we have this gruesome detail that it sinks into the giant's forehead. One commentator suggested that the, that the uh, smooth stone was likely the size of about a tennis ball because for a man that's big, that big, that's what he theorized it would take to crush through the cranial bone on his forehead and land in the skin embedded the way that it's 
talked about. I know you really wanted that image in your face. Uh, And ultimately, look at verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. So Goliath ends up facing the same exact fate as his god Dagon. Look at verses, uh, you don't need to turn there, I'll read them. Chapter 5 of this book. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward, just like this giant on the ground before him, before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. You know that you've got a lousy God if you've got to do that in the morning. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon. And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Goliath, I mean Dagon, was left to him. He goes out the same way as his God's. It's interesting. I mean, this passage could really be summed up as so go the gods, so go the people, right? So he's headless, he's defeated, he's humiliated, falling down in the presence of the Lord just like he did before the Ark of the Covenant. And David's triumph in verses 52 and 53 ends up becoming the triumph of the people. Look at this. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from the chasing of the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me that the people shout in victory and even give a war cry, even though they didn't do anything to help accomplish the victory, did they? It reminds me of an old song, an old saying, that the only thing that I brought to the cross was the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> I didn't bring anything else of value to that battle. Yet with many of you, I shouted my war cries and victory this morning in worship because of the triumph of Jesus. Well, the only thing that they brought to the battlefield was their need for a rescuer. Yet, In David's victory, they find their victory. Just as David had predicted back in 46. In his courage, they find courage to face the day. In his triumph, they were triumphant. David routes the Philistine, and that becomes their route of the Philistines. And David's victory, brothers and sisters, is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. We, too, were defeated and in need to be rescued by the son of Jesse. The only thing that we brought to the battlefield on the day of our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Yet in Christ's victory, we find victory even though we never lifted a stone to accomplish it. In Christ's triumph, you are triumphant. In Christ's destruction of sin, your sin has been defeated. And now we can raise a victorious war cry Because Christ, our King, has triumphed. And our King has saved us, not with sword and not with spears, but with hammers and nails and a cross. 
I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? The foolish things of the world continue to confound the wise. And then you have some foreshadowing of David the king ruling from Jerusalem. In verse 54, it says, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And that sounds right, right? If you read the Bible, a king going up to Jerusalem is kind of what you do after this happens. Only problem was there was no Jerusalem yet. Um, David doesn't defeat Jerusalem until 2 Samuel chapter 5. So... I wouldn't stake my salvation on this being the interpretation of it, but this is my my best guess, is that the books of Samuel are pointing to this son of Jesse who would rule from the throne in Jerusalem. And this is just a prefiguring of his victory, the victorious king ruling from Jerusalem. And in our final point to wrap up the chapter, the victory was accomplished by the son of Jesse. Look with me. At the last couple of verses, verse 55 through 59. It says, And soon Saul saw danger, uh, saw David go out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And the head of the Philistine was in his hand. And David said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. I'm not going to go into um, Saul being introduced to Jesse and to David for the third time now. Um, we've, we've gone through two on this. Um, either Saul has the worst memory in history and needs to keep being reintroduced to this guy. And I'll... There's some of you that can get that, right? Like, I, I've had a few of you introduce me to you and introduce me to yourself like 12 times, and I'm just like, I know your name by now. I'm not that forgetful, but <laughs> I think that it's actually put there to show emphasis, and um, the emphasis being on whose son is this, because that's the one that's repeated through the refrain. And the immediate fulfillment is. There was a promise by Saul that whoever defeated the giant, his whole household would be free and be tax-free forever. So I think that's the immediate fulfillment for the asking of the question. Um, Jesse gets to be tax-free for the rest of his life. No more taxes, Jesse. But I think the emphasis is on the father, um, perhaps, to maybe point out the salvific work accomplished by the son. Um, That's my interpretation of it, that they keep emphasizing on the Father, but it was the Son who came and saved the people in the battle. So in wrapping up our story, um, this chapter has been really fun to teach. Um, It really has. It's had so much great stuff. Um, We saw about human response to crisis, fear, bargaining, judging of motives, lashing out, We saw a lot about faith, that the Lord does not save by sword or by spear. And most importantly, we saw a lot about God, that he doesn't abandon his people in times of crisis. You could take that to heart. If you're in crisis, he does not abandon his people in times of crisis. God is jealous for his own glory and will not share it with another. We see that 
about him. The gods of this world are no match for the living God. And it might look like everything's swirling out of control and is crazy, but the gods of this earth are still as mute as Dagon was back in this passage. He's a victorious God, and in his victory, we find victory. But just the application for this week's passage alone, though, the battle's the Lord's. That was point one. And this should lead us to be prayerful and to examine if our ways are in line with his ways. If it's really his battle, then let's mobilize him to that battle through prayer. The victory is the Lord's. This should cause us to be humble and courageous. It's not my victory. It's not your victory. But we can claim that victory through Jesus. His victory is our victory. And that should cause us to be grateful and to raise a war shout in worship. I'm going to pray. Um, when we close the service, I'm going to walk you through a prayer through Psalm 118 that hits on some of these truths so that we can pray them back to the Lord in worship. Let me pray. God, thank you for this great text. Lord, I thank you that the battle is yours, that the victory has already been won, and that your victory is applied to the people through faith. Lord, may we... God, I pray for anybody here who's never put their faith in you, who is trying to strive against sin and strive against this world on their own. Lord, may they humble themselves, bend their knee, and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you came here and you have any need to pray with anyone or any prayer needs, there will be people up here afterwards, and I would encourage you to make use of them, um, pray with them. They'd love to pray with you. If you're here and you don't know what it means to trust Christ for your Savior, as your Savior and to put your faith in him, I would love to talk to you afterwards and follow up and answer any questions. Um, for our benediction today, um, like I told you, the, when David said that uh, he was going in the name of the Lord, um, that's, that's quoted a couple of really important times in the Scripture. And I want to do a responsive reading with all of us. Um, so I'm going to ask if you would stand. And I'm going to read the light words, and then everybody responds on the darker colored words. If you can't see them, it's because you're old, because we have an over 40 setting on right now. Um, okay. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 118 and from Matthew 21. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Save us, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us victory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. 
O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. They brought a donkey and a colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the crowds that were following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus, thank you for being our Savior, our Conqueror, our Rescuer, and that in you we have victory, Lord. We proclaim this with gratitude boldly, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.